Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Bernard Fraga, who is the author of The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America. The book is published by Cambridge University Press this year, recently out, and I have the pleasure to have the author with me here today. Bernard, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Yeah, we are both recovering from the election, which I hope we're able to talk (laughs) about a little bit, but... Uh, we also have this great, really interesting, um, uh, uh, really in-depth look at something that um, affected 2018 election, but also previous elections. So thank you for joining the podcast. And, and maybe we can start by just learning a little bit more about you and who you are. Would you share a little bit about your, your background and where you are now? Sure. So I'm currently an assistant professor at Indiana University in the Department of Political Science. And I've been there about six years. I did my PhD at Harvard. And I'm actually originally from Indiana. So I'm kind of back home, my home state, a Midwestern boy. And uh, yeah, I really enjoy my time here. I focus on elections and voting behavior and the role of race in elections, especially. Yeah, the the uh, book, uh, as the title suggests, is is about uh, the intersections between race and ethnicity, and also elections and turnout. Uh, there's this this tried and true phrase that uh, demography is destiny, or something like that. And your book sort of plays with that idea and some of the the holes in that logic. Um, I wonder if we could start by by asking you to talk a little bit about the the changing demographics of the United States. The, the diversifying uh, in, in the subtitle, uh, and then what that has to do with the political destiny of the country. Sure. So as I discussed at the beginning of the book, you know, as you, and as you mentioned, there's this idea that demography is destiny, that we're a diversifying country, and indeed, that's exactly what the data suggests. Uh, as an example, in 1965, so at the time the Voting Rights Act was passed, this nation was about 15% non-white. So that means 85% of the population was what today we'd call white or non-Hispanic white. Uh, In 2020, according to the census, will be around 40% non-white. So this is a big demographic change, uh, profound and much more substantial than anything we had seen in previous decades or previous centuries. Uh, And because of that demographic change, many uh, who have studied elections, but American politics in general have said that this is going to mean that minority groups have more influence more of a say in election outcomes than they did before. Uh, Narratives such as the sleeping giant, the idea that Latinos are uh, this population growing, one of the fastest growing populations that will dominate election outcomes, haven't quite come to pass. And this puzzle really helped motivate the research and the book, really trying to understand what this diversification meant for politics and the ways in which, despite increasing diversity, we will still see minority groups underrepresented in American politics. So, so there's this, I think, um, a, a wide understanding of, of those that pay attention to politics, that, that there's this gap between different groups of voters. I wonder if you could talk about the, the difference between what we typically perceive that gap to be and what it actually is using the, the unique and, and different data that you include in the book. And so what's, you know, what's, the, what's the actual gap based on what you've studied? And maybe compare that to what people have thought the gap is. 
Sure. So the, you know, the gap, the title of the book, The Turnout Gap, is about disparities in voter turnout and voter participation. And specifically, I'm thinking about disparities in the rate of political participation. So the rate of voter turnout, how many people are eligible to vote, and then above that is the numerator, the number of people who actually show up. So of the people who could vote, how many actually voted? Then if we break that down by race and ethnicity, we know for a long time that there have been disparities in rates of voter turnout. Non-Hispanic whites turn out at a higher rate than African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians. We've seen that historically. That pattern has been true I mean, since World War II, at least. However, in recent elections, 2008 and 2012, many in the press and according to some official survey data provided by the Census Bureau, it looked like the gap between African-Americans and whites had closed. Black voter turnout had been gaining gaining ground over white voter turnout for the 2000s, but 2008 and 2012 historic elections with President Obama, uh, that's where we saw perhaps a reversal of the turnout gap using survey data. Now, two things to note here. Number one is that self-reported voter turnout. In the book, I talk about survey data, but rely primarily on voter file data, official records of who turned out to vote, not subject to over-reporting, people saying they voted when they really didn't. In addition, even with the gap in survey data between African-Americans and whites closing recent elections for Latinos and Asian-Americans, two fastest growing minority groups contributing to that diversity that I referred to earlier, we still see significant and large gaps even with surveys, 10 percentage points, maybe 15 to 20 percentage point difference between the turnout rate of whites and Latinos or whites and Asian-Americans. Now, when using voter file data, I see even larger gaps. For African-Americans, see a persistent gap of about 10 percentage points. And for Latinos and Asians, maybe even approaching 30 percentage point difference in the rate of voter turnout among eligible voters who are Latino, Asian-American, or African-American versus whites. So those are the gaps I'm interested in. And those are the gaps that I spend most of the book talking about. Yeah, so so given the, the these these gaps and sort of the better are a better empirical understanding of, of their magnitude. What's the problem? Uh, what's the problem with a, a magnitude of, of this difference between groups of voters? Um, in, in theoretical terms, what, is, what does it matter to our politics that we see these, these persistent and, and significant gaps? Sure. So, you know, that's an important question. Um, I approach this in a couple different ways. But the first way we might think that there's a, a kind of normative issue with our democracy if the people who are participating, who are voting, uh, don't reflect or reflect some groups more than others, um, don't reflect the population as a whole, even the eligible population as a whole. So the people who could vote, if there, uh, there's some disparities in representation, uh, that might have an impact on our kind of normative assessment of our democracy. Basically, are the people who are choosing our leaders reflecting the population who could choose our leaders, the people who are going to have to deal with the government that we put in place? So that's a normative kind of argument. It's that the idea of these disparities or distortions, some people say, um, caused by differential turnout rates for different groups, uh, that might create a normative problem. Uh, The second way in which this might matter is in terms of outcomes, in terms of who wins and who loses. And so I spent some time talking about this in the book as well. What we've seen recently is that the Democratic Party is more and more reliant on minority voters, and the Republican Party is... Uh, not as reliant on minority voters, we might say, so more heavily white. So what this means is that if we see low turnout for minority groups, African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians, compared to whites, that means the Democrats are going to suffer the consequences in terms of their electoral outcomes. 
And that's exactly what I find. So 2016 election, President Clinton winning the popular vote by losing the electoral college. If rates of turnout were equal across racial groups, Clinton would have been elected. Now, that was a close election, just one time. But if you look at the Senate, you see the same pattern, which is the Democrats do significantly worse because of low voter turnout for minority groups. So when we talk about issues with the Senate or the Electoral College, actually a lot of that kind of goes away if rates of turnout were equal across racial and ethnic groups. So there's a normative argument and an outcomes argument in terms of what actually happens on the ground is really shaped by the turnout gap. Now, there's a lot of theories for why this gap exists. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the, what this conventional wisdom is, and then also what is your alternative theory for what best explains the turnout gap? I'm not the first one to identify these disparities in participation. Uh, I show that they're a little bit larger than we might have thought, but you know we've been studying disparities, racial differences, and who turns out to vote for decades. In fact, some of the earliest political science research studied differential access to the ballot. So that's one big kind of notion that's out there in the literature and has gotten recent attention as well, the idea of vote suppression, that somehow laws and institutions are designed, uh, perhaps it in certain states or in certain counties, to suppress or reduce minority turnout. Now, of course, that's true historically. Uh, the Jim Crow era and even afterwards, uh, several techniques were used to try and diminish the voting strength of especially African Americans, but also Latinos and Asian Americans in some places. Now, when I examine the contemporary evidence for vote suppression, I don't see as much um, as large a magnitude of an effect as would be necessary to explain the entirety of the turnout gap. Contemporary vote suppression exists, is real, and does harm minority groups more than the white population. But nowhere near large enough to account for these 10, 20, even 30 percentage point differences in who turns out to vote. It's just not big enough to account for that. So the other explanation people have turned to uh, focuses on socioeconomics or demographic features, African Americans and Latinos are a younger population. Latinos and Asian Americans are non-citizens, or a large portion are non-citizens. Um, and rates of income, or yeah, income and education, um, lower income, lower education, on average for African Americans and Latinos. So maybe that explains differences in turnout. But those patterns don't really hold up as well as we think either. Asian Americans, high income, high education on average, especially for citizens, still see low rates of voter turnout. African-Americans, low education, low income on average, higher rates of voter turnout than Latinos or Asians. Asian-Americans, older population in terms of citizens, still rates of lower turnout. So it's just not a neat story there either. Like vote suppression, part of the solution, but not all of it. So I focus on alternatives that are built more on empowerment and mobilization instead. Now, and in doing so, you, you offer a theory about um, uh, electoral influence, uh, and the way in which a group's um, uh, percentage of a of a voting area might might relate to their turnout, and and one of the ways that you examine this is through a natural experiment uh, that allows for a, a causal relationship to be studied. I wonder if you could describe that natural experiment um, and 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 what it, what it um, what it allows you to test about the relationship between electoral uh, factors and also outcomes, and, and then sort of what, what you found for the treatment and control groups. The theory that I rely on in the book is that 
groups have higher rates of voter turnout when they have more influence in election outcomes. That's what I term electoral influence, the idea that when groups make up a larger share of the population, we're likely to see candidates and campaigns do more outreach efforts, more mobilization, also pay attention to the issues of those groups, and even field candidates who are members of those groups as well. So this helps us to understand why voter turnout is high for whites and lower for minorities, because almost everywhere in the country, white voters dominate. They're the largest group. They have candidates. The parties rely on their support in order to win. So it actually makes sense why we see a turnout gap. Now, I leverage, as you mentioned, a natural experiment to try and understand what happens if we change the influence that groups have. And by change, I mean changing the context around an individual so that he or she finds him or herself in a place where all of a sudden their group no longer has as much influence in the electoral process. To do so, I leverage redistricting. So redistricting, where individuals themselves don't move, but the district around them changes configuration, gerrymandering, right? That also often incorporates information about race. So an individual who's African-American might, in one election, find themselves in a majority white district, then in the next election, find themselves in a majority black district. When they end up in a majority black district, does their turnout increase because candidates maybe pay attention to them, mobilize them, etc.? And I indeed find that turnout increases relative to other groups for African-Americans and to some degree for Latinos when they get put in majority black or majority Latino districts, respectively. Now, I also find a similar pattern for whites, which is actually interesting. We don't usually think about that in terms of racial composition or electoral influence, but white turnout increases four, five, six, maybe even seven percentage points when whites are redistricted into majority white districts for the first time. So I think this demonstrates that electoral influence and really the incentives that candidates have to mobilize are what drives the patterns that I find in the book. Now, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit um, and, and talk a little bit more about, uh, about how campaigns actually enter into this equation. Um, in that, are campaigns simply responding to the geographic concentration of voters or do they have an active role in, in opening or closing the gap in turnout? Are they, I guess, ultimately, are they active or are they passive participants in, in uh, how uh, voters uh, come out and participate in elections? Well, that's a really great question. And I think in the book, I have some suggestive evidence for exactly how active these campaigns or candidates are. So one way in which they're active is the fact that parties and candidates shape the coalitions. Uh, so in a place that's relatively diverse, um, that is with many different groups where different coalitions can be built, we already know that, for example, the Republican coalition will look different from the Democratic coalition. So we might see in a place like Georgia, for example, a Democrat running for office is going to have much greater incentives to mobilize African-Americans, despite African-Americans not being a majority of the population. Republicans, on the other hand, more reliant on white voters, even if there's a large black population, might not do as much outreach because they say, well, they're never going to support me anyway. So one way in which parties and candidates are active is in those party coalitions and the decisions that they make therein. But a way in which they're kind of passive is the fact that even a party like right now, the Democratic Party that attempts to do a lot of outreach to minority constituencies, in some parts of the country, that's just not going to cut it. I think a good example of that is here in Indiana. We just had a Senate election, Joe Donnelly running for office, seeking re-election. African-American voters in Indiana are 
a reasonable portion of the electorate, but still around maybe 10%. For Democrats, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to be enough to build a winning coalition. So Donnelly then caters to the white electorate, focuses on, on mobilizing white voters, on talking about the issues of concern to whites as well. So the reality on the ground shapes the kind of choices that candidates and campaigns have. And I think shapes those choices in ways that we might not quite fully understand unless we look at the demographic reality. So your study is, is uh, of, the, of the past, the recent past, but, but still the past. But I wonder what these findings say about our most recent election earlier this month. Um, from what you see or what you can see at this, this early point, we don't, we don't know exactly uh, uh, what happened in terms of turnout, but uh, did the, the gaps that we've seen in the past persist? Are there any reasons to think that the campaigns and parties um, have integrated any new strategies to turn out voters in places that might not have turned out in the past? Well, you know, as you said, we don't have all the data yet. We need to make firm conclusions. But there's a little bit of evidence that I've looked at already, and then I'll talk about some evidence based on what we saw on election night. So first, uh, I did a study with Brian Schaffner of Tufts University looking at early voters. So voters who cast their ballot or who cast their ballot a week before election day, we looked at the racial composition of that population and broke it down by state and tried to see whether in certain states where the narrative was candidates were doing more to mobilize minority voters, uh, whether we saw increases. So the three states that I think are interesting to look at, Georgia, candidacy of Stacey Abrams running for governor, African-American, did we see an increase in black turnout? Texas with Beto O'Rourke running for Senate, mobilizing Latinos especially, also African-Americans. And then also what we saw in Florida with the candidacies of Andrew Gillum running for governor and Nelson running for Senate. So what we saw there were some increases over the 2014 rate of voter turnout, perhaps for Latinos, especially in Texas and African-Americans in Florida and in Georgia, but still substantial disparities, still substantial turnout gaps, as far as we can tell in the early voting. Not quite enough, not quite even as much as or many, as much of a gain in turnout as we saw in the 2016 presidential election. So what that suggests to me is that there were efforts made, but it still wasn't enough to overcome the vast kind of historical level of low turnout that we see in midterm elections for minority groups. So, I mean, to me, that's suggestive kind of a, a narrative, and we'll see what the actual data looks like when it comes out, of a narrative that perhaps, perhaps there were some gains, but not quite enough to put some of the candidates like Beto O'Rourke or Abrams, at least, over the edge. Now, if we look at kind of what happened on election night, broaden our scope to examine House contests, I think there we see more evidence that, you know, these increases perhaps in minority voting because of more mobilization, more focus, especially in those southern sunbelt states, might have actually yielded some gains for Democrats. In Texas, picked up a few House seats. As well, we saw gains even in places in the Deep South, South Carolina, even Georgia, perhaps, Democrats doing better than they had before because of increases in minority turnout. And we know that there were some PACs that were focused on minority voting, and the Democratic Party itself released a campaign ad in Spanish encouraging voter turnout. So there's a shift. There is some change in terms of especially Democrats saying that we should mobilize more minority voters, but still we're going to see a turnout gap. That's my guess when we look at the real data. The book, the the really timely and interesting book uh, is again titled The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America. Uh, Bernard's book is published by Cambridge University Press this year. 
Garth, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.